Hello and welcome back to Secondary Rules. This is the Donahue and Stevenson edition. I'm Ryan Goss. And I'm Joshua Neal. And we're brought to you, as always, by the ANU Law School. This is the third episode of our second season, and each episode this season, we're telling the story of a great landmark court decision. And we're trying to move around the world from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, putting the spotlight on one case every week. We'll pull it apart, talk it through, and think about its broader significance. These won't always be cases we're world experts on necessarily, but they're cases that have fascinated us or enraged us or intrigued us over the years. Thanks to everyone who's been in touch over the last week with your feedback and ideas. And don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating if you're feeling generous. <laughs> Only if you're, <laughs> Only feeling, if you're generous. feeling generous. Yes. Uh, and Joshua, for our case today, we have Donahue and Stevenson. And in our, let's say, our production meeting earlier, you were skeptical that in an audio medium, medium like the podcast, <laughs> that props would be useful. But I'm, I've, listeners, I've convinced Joshua that... <laughs> Given the subject matter of this episode, props are useful. So we are each holding, you can take us at our word, listeners, we'll clink them together. We're each holding an opaque bottle of ginger beer produced by a highly reputable ginger beer manufacturer from the state of Queensland that we won't know. And Joshua, we're about to open our opaque bottles of ginger okay, beer. Hang on, we have to time the opening. We have to time the opening. For and, proper effect. And given it's an audio medium, this is high risk. So we need to put it near the microphones. And then during the episode, I propose that we pause occasionally for sustenance and refreshment from our hopefully untainted opaque bottle of ginger beer. Right. Hang on. Is it one, two, three open? Correct. Or one, two, three? At, do I open at three or do I open after three? <laughs> All right, Costanza. Let's, let's open at three. Let's just do that. Okay. okay. One, two, three. There we go. And in the course of that, we've both gotten <laughs> some amount of ginger beer. On our show. Over the ANU's equipment, so we're apologetic to the ANU's law school there. Okay, success. Do we clink? <sighs> clink. So, we're enjoying our opaque bottles of ginger beer. I think we can all agree that was a success. And we'll, With or without snails. We will repeat that in prop, use of props in future episodes. Anyway, this week is a decision of the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords, uh, and one that we can agree is squarely within our remit of public law and legal theory. Joshua, Donahue and Stevenson, what is this case? Why are we looking – well, before we get to why we're looking at it, uh, for those who don't know and for whom the ginger beer references will be quite <laughs> mysterious at this point, what are the facts of Donahue and Stevenson? So th this case is perhaps one of the first cases that any law student in the common law world would study. I remember studying that as a law student in my very first course yep. at the law school. And it's the facts are pretty strange, but uh, – Pretty straightforward. Certainly more straightforward than the facts on Gibraltar that you agreed. Agreed. <laughs> agreed. <laughs> Tallest, it would not take us like fifteen minutes to get the facts out. A ginger beer bottle was sold to a person. The person bought the ginger beer bottle. The ginger beer bottle was opaque, so she could not see what's inside the bottle. She proceeded to pour the bottle, the, the content of the bottle, out to drink the beverage. And to her horror, she found a dead and decomposing snail inside the ginger beer bottle. Now, to, to add a bit of a gloss to that, the bottle and the ginger beer was manufactured by a company. Mm -hmm. And um, the company was then sold it to a distributor who mm -hmm. sold it to the shop, who sold it to our unsuspecting drinker. Yep. Her friend 
bought it for her. Mm -hmm. And crucially, I think, on her version of the facts anyway, she'd had poured out a bit of this drink already, had a few sips, mm -hmm. and then only afterwards when she refilled her glass did she discover that there was the, the snail in there. She said it made her um, severely ill but also mm. – just quite shocked and upset at the fact of finding the snail carcass. Yeah. A marinated escargot, I suppose, is what we're talking about <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the ginger beer. This, this is the very first case that all law students would study in their taught course. It's initially when I studied it, it always puzzled me. What's the big deal about this case? I mean, it is disgusting. Yeah. It is quirky. It is weird. Memorable. Memorable, but... What's the big deal? I mean, there are so many uh, such um, negligent acts being committed in a daily course of trade and business and running uh, different operations. It is not the worst that could uh, happen following an act of negligence and it's puzzling, right? What's the big deal about this case? And the interesting thing about this case actually does not lie in its facts. It does not even lie in the victory that was ruled for the plaintiff, right? So she won the case. And we should we should just give a, a short spoiler for those who aren't familiar with the case. It, she won the case and uh, it established a um, new understanding of the law of negligence, the tort of, the, of torts law in the law of negligence that over decades to come slowly but surely reshaped how we understand the law of negligence. Yeah, so it shows that what makes a decision a landmark decision is actually not the particular outcome of that particular case, but it lies in the judgment. What does the judgment say more generally and more broadly than the facts of the case? That's what makes this case a landmark decision. So Lord Atkin, whose judgment later became the leading judgment, and it became the leading judgment by subsequent citation. Right. And, and importantly, I was, I was reading a, a case note on Don Huon Stevenson from the year or so after it was decided. I didn't tell you this beforehand. And in that, they, the, the author notes that it's clearly a big decision, but the full ramifications of it weren't clear. Mm. And in fact, in the same edition of the law reports was, a nut, was an attempt to extend this principle to another case and the court said, no, we won't, mm. won't, won't extend it. So its full significance was, it was clear that it was somehow significant mm -hmm. at the time, but exactly what that significance was, wasn't necessarily clear. Yeah. And because there were multiple judgments being issued, yeah. so unlike the US Supreme Court, where there is a single opinion of the court, the way the English judges do this is that each judge issues his or her own judgment, Lord Atkins' judgment became the defining judgment of the case later because everyone started citing Lord Atkin over the other judges. And so there, were th there was a three to two decision and um, the three judges um, who, who, Lord Atkin and the two others, were sometimes referred to as a Celtic majority, being judges of in one way or another Welsh or Scottish origins against two English judges in this case. And this case came out of Scotland. Yes. Uh, as well. So it was a, a Celtic case with a Celtic majority. But you have something to say about Lord Atkin. Well, I think what's not appreciated often enough is that Lord Atkin was a Queenslander, Joshua. Like the ginger beer that we like drank. Like the ginger <laughs> and and like your co-host. And um, he was born in, in Brisbane. And um, uh, we'll put in the show notes a, a video or a speech by High Court Justice Keane, who I worked for a long time ago, um, speaking about Lord Atkin, should I do that? Should I read out a little bit of this here? Yes. 
Dick Atkin, as Justice Keane refers to him as, Dick Atkin travelled to Wales from Queensland when he was only three years old. It might be thought that given Atkin's brief time as a Queensland resident, it is unreasonable, even churlish of us, to claim Dick Atkin as one of our own. But we Queenslanders acknowledge no equal when it comes to churlishness. So he's, <laughs> he's definitely a Queenslander. And in the last few years, Queensland has taken to celebrating him quite enthusiastically. How churlish are you as a Queenslander? <laughs> we, we know no equal. So anyway, so he's, he's a Welsh by way of Queensland judge or Queensland by way of Wales judge. Um, what is it about his judgment that um, over time earns it as the earns it the position as the leading judgment as the one that when we think of Donahue and Stevenson really that's what we're thinking of. Yeah. So before his judgment, the law of torts, especially the tort of negligence, was structured around a series of established relationships. For example, employer-employee. There's a relationship which attracted the duty of care. Parent, child, teacher, student owner of premises or occupier of premises and entrance upon those premises. And you, the way you established uh, a claim in torts is to fit your factual scenario within one of the established categories. What was lacking until Lord Atkin came along was a general principle which unifies all the established categories and which would also allow the creation of new categories, the identification of this general principle. And when you read, I mean, my sense reading the minority judgments in Donahue and Stevenson is that they they go through this grab bag, this random, this sort of list of categories of relationship, mm. a list of categories and say, does it fit into this one? No. Does mm -hmm. it fit into this one? No. Does it fit into this one? And it, and it, it is just a to the modern reader's eyes, with the benefit of uh, 90 years hence, it's it's a random grab bag of cases that mm -hmm. happen to have evolved over the hundred years or hundreds of years beforehand, rather than, it's typical of the common law, rather than someone sitting down and saying, here's the principle, here's the, uh, the ways in which it might manifest. Yeah, so the drawing out yeah. of the principle underlying those cases was Lord Atkins' genius, right? The ability to point out that that's the underlying principle, and then to allow that principle to operate independently of the established category. So yeah. henceforth, parties can argue for the existence of a duty of care without having to link the, the facts of their case to one of the established categories that could appeal directly to this principle. And this principle, I'll can you read it to us in a Queenslander? <laughs> a Queensland <laughs> Welsh accent. That's right. And read it churlishly, if you could. Yeah. Okay. Here, here is the principle that Lord Atkin says underlies. So he's looked at the range of categories. He said, we need to be able to articulate something that underlies all of these. In, 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 to use my language, if we do that, if we can... Um, interpolate between the categories we exist and try and mm -hmm. rationalise them, we can then use that as the basis for extrapolating, identifying new categories or forgetting about the categories and just, as you say, referring to the principle. Exactly, exactly. Here we go. The rule that you are to love your neighbour becomes in law, you must not injure your neighbour. And the lawyer's question, who is my neighbour, receives a restricted reply. You must take reasonable care to avoid acts or omissions which you can reasonably foresee would be likely to injure your neighbour. Famous line. Who then in law is my neighbour? The answer seems to be persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act 
that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to the acts or omissions which are called into question. Who then in law is my neighbour? Exactly. And the idea that the law of torts, particularly the tort of negligence, is centred on this rule to love your neighbour. That's curious, right? I mean, if you look at all the old cases, you will actually not find this idea yeah. uh, being stated in any of the precedents at that time that somehow the law of torts is a, not only about taking reasonable care, but it's an expression of love and, ex- and it's an expression of the love of neighbour. And neighbourliness in some general sense as well. Yeah. yeah. So that line, actually, the, the, the line that you should love your neighbour actually comes from the Bible, comes from the Gospel, and particularly this question, who is my neighbour who I have to love, comes from the parable of the Good Samaritan found in the Gospel of Luke. And everyone reading the judgment in 1931, 32 would have been fully aware of the, exactly the reference that Lord Atkin was making. That's right. And let's now... Are we doing another reenactment? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to propose, propose another reenactment. Okay. That's right. And I will play, as I like to, the role of Jesus. It's very, very humble of you. Okay. Uh, well, let's see how this goes. This is... Uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Thank you, Joshua. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So it's a law exam situation. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while travelling, came upon him And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend." Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy. Go and do likewise. So this This story... You go. So this story began with a lawyer, an expert in the law, asking Jesus a definitional question, Mm. much like how Lord Atkin... opposed this definitional question. Who is one's neighbour to whom, in the case of the parable, uh, one should love? And in the case of Lord Atkins' judgment, to whom one owes a duty of care? So there is 
surprising parallel between the question posed in Donahue and Stevenson by Lord Atkin and the question posed to Jesus by the expert in the law. How much of that is, is um, for want of a better term, a rhetorical flourish by Lord Atkin, you know, using that, that the rhythm of and the, the phrase of um, who then in law is my neighbour, borrowing from the parable, and how much of it is imbued with the same substantive lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yeah. I mean, as a rhetorical flourish, one can't explain where he got that from from the cases. It's not as if yeah. he's trying to <clears throat> pick a point out of the cases and then give it a rhetorical flourish, right? Because the cases don't talk about love of neighbour. I think it is more, as you, the, the, what you said in your second suggestion, he was trying to tap into a deep sense of neighbourly relations that his audience would have had um, when, and which would resonate with them when they read this judgment. So there are a few interesting things that we might take away from the parable and then we might link yeah, it back with the judgment. After all, I, there's nothing I like to do more than to talk about the Bible. You've managed to smuggle the Bible stories into quite a number of these podcasts now, as I listen to <laughs> So, so what, do we, what do we take from this, from the parable? So we might begin with the Samaritan. Yeah. So the Samaritan was just traveling uh, f- uh, uh, on the road. So this Samaritan wasn't a do-gooder who was a social justice warrior wanting to go and make the world a better place, uh, to, to go and find causes to champion. He was just minding his own business, Go, traveling from one point to another. And for Lord Atkins' purpose, had no real existing relationship with the, um, the, the man who'd fallen into the hands of the robbers, had no particular employment or responsibility relationship or any other relationship with the robbers or the road or anything else. That's right, that's right. And he was just uh, doing what he was doing. Just yeah. as in many torts cases, it's not as if the, the, the uh, defendant was uh, trying to engage with the plaintiff, right? The defendant was just minding their own business and in the cause of it, came into contact with the plaintiff. To add to this complexity that the Samaritan was just minding his own business, not only was he minding his own business, there was deep-seated antagonism between Samaritans and Jewish people uh, at the time when the parable was written. So now, but when we say Samaritan now, we mean because of this parable, someone doing good things for someone else or helping someone out without any need to, but, it, but it's, a, it's a description of people from a particular place. Samaria. Yeah. Right, so um, the West Bank is sometimes known as Judea and Samaria. So ancient Israel was split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judea uh, and the kingdom of Samaria. And from the kingdom of Judea or Judah, we have the Jews, the word the Jews. And from the kingdom of Samaria, we have the word the Samaritans. So the deep-seated antagonism between Samaritans and the Jews um, is akin like deep-seated antagonism between those from Oxford and Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) So it is like someone from Cambridge walking past and see a wounded Oxonian on the road. And the instinct is... uh, he deserves <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, right, to be right, lying right. on the road, right? Okay. So that, so that, that's the, the, the context of the story. Now, when this Samaritan saw this particular wounded Jew, there was no pre-existing 
kinship connection. So that's the point, right? So there's no existing contractual connection of, of any sort. The only connection one can think of is the connection of proximity. And so let me interrupt you briefly. So we're talking about neighbours here, but it's not they're not living side by side in that sense of neighbourliness. It's, it's that they happen to be one, occupying the same bit of road in a passing way at the same time. Yeah, so neighbour here meaning someone who is nearby. Yeah. Right, and the Samaritan was nearby the wounded Jew. They were bound together, as it were, by chance, being at the same place at the same time. And then this idea of proximity would feature very strongly in uh, the law of thoughts post Donahue and Stevenson that there needs to be a proximate relationship. But of course, the proximity now can be read not just geographical proximity, but in the proximate relation. However, in the parable, it is not read metaphorically. It yeah. was just sheer geographical proximity which brought them together. And, and to interject, the word proximity jumps out reading the judgment. It battles over the understanding of proximity, what proximity meant as a limiting factor on this area of negligence continued in, as I understand, most common law jurisdictions mm. until I last turned my mind to this doing torts in about 2001. I think proximity <laughs> was the bane of my existence as a law student. So, so it, it jumps out at you there from the judgment. Mm -hmm. It's there in the parable of the Good Samaritan and it it is the – or the battle to understand what the limiting factor is on mm. who is a neighbour is the inevitable result of Lord Atkins synthesising this and bringing it together, do you think? Yeah, and to use proximity metaphorically. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because yeah, in yeah, the yeah. parable, it was literal proximity. Whereas Lord Atkins then makes it into a metaphor and then we have to now work out, as with all metaphors, what are the limits of that metaphor? And in this instance, the... The, the way of underlining that is that the poor um, uh, drinker of the ginger beer was not geographically proximate to the manufacturer of mm -hmm. the ginger beer, was not in a contractual relationship with the manufacturer of the ginger beer, did not have any of the existing relationships at all. So there's by any literal definition of proximity, they had no, they were not proximate. But that, by virtue of the neighbour principle, by virtue of this development of negligence or this understanding of negligence, they were proximate. Yeah. So when we... Now turn our mind to Jesus' answer to the lawyer. I think Jesus would have failed a law exam. Well, he's, he's, not, I was, he's not directly answering the question, is he? He's I mean, not answering the question at all. <laughs> Lord Akin at least gives a, an attempt to say, who then lawyers my neighbour and gives a response. Whereas, with all due respect, he, <laughs> are we confident on this ground, Joshua? Um, Jesus is, is more in the credit territory or the, the past territory in not giving a direct response to the question asked. Yeah. In most cases, we might do well to do what Jesus did. <laughs> in this case, law students should be cautioned against doing what Jesus did. You should not ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? In fact, you should do the opposite of what Jesus did. Was Jesus, Jesus did not answer the question, the question asked by the lawyer was for a definition yeah. of who one's neighbour is. Jesus gave a non-answer, or rather a non-legalistic answer, right? So he answered the question by telling a story. At the end of the story, he doesn't then sum up what the definition is. And one might think that the whole point of the story is to tell the lawyer that there is no definition possible in identifying who is or is not a neighbour. 
That is. That is, th- therefore, that everyone is your neighbor. Th- yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. But in a very particular way. So the good Samaritan did not love someone who was his neighbor. Rather, yeah. in loving the person, he made the wounded Jew his neighbor. Yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. his actions created neighborly relations. Law tries to do it the other way around. Yeah. And the logic of law operates on the basis of a pre-formulated definition, a general definition, which you then go around, go around, try to apply the general definition to particular facts and instances. And one point of the parable is that it should actually be the other way around. Right? You respond to the particularity of that situation first. And in responding to the particularity of that situation, you make a neighbor out of yeah. the wounded Jew. And that is not, I don't think, what Lord Atkin had in mind when he formulated the general principle. But as it turns out, that is actually how I think the principle ended up operating. Because the principle then, as it evolved, relied on this nebulous standard of reasonableness. What is reasonable for a yeah. person to have done? Now, that is just a way to not answer the question. Well, it, it, it's, one might think even worse than that, because if you look at among these passages, you must take reasonable care, one reasonableness, to avoid acts or omissions which you can reasonably foresee another reasonableness would be likely to injure your neighbour. Mm. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in <laughs> contemplation. <laughs> so it's triple reasonableness. Yeah. So reasonableness just means I can't tell you in advance. Yeah what you should or should not do, who is or is not a neighbor in your, the particular situation, just act using your common sense. And in acting according to your common sense, you create neighborly relations. So the Samaritan saw the wounded Jew and he was moved to help the wounded Jew. The, his common sense tells him that I can't possibly leave this person lying on the street And in stopping and taking care of the wounded Jew, the wounded Jew became his neighbor, right? So I think that it's a a response to the lawyer to saying that lawyers are in their obsession with definitions, could not possibly love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is is not to worry about definitions, but just to act in the situation. And the courts and judges and uh, the law might come later, as uh, in many tort cases, to try to work out whether have you acted reasonably or not. But to ask for anything more would be impossible. To say, forget about definitions and focus on love is not the sort of thing we would usually think of as as people dealing with law or playing around with law, is it? That's right. But um, Lord Atkins said, the law of torts is about the love of neighbour. And if we were to take it seriously, we have to think what it means to love. Now, I'm going to push you a little bit, Joshua, unless I've cut you off mid-love. No. Um, reading the judgments, I was struck that reading the dissenting judgments, the old-fashioned, the pre-Donahue and Stevenson approach, if we call it that, what you see is the judges saying um, the way to approach this is, as you've said, through the categories, but the way that they do that is page after page after page, case, case, case. Mm. It's not like this case. 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 Conclusion, therefore, it's not like any of the existing cases. Therefore, she loses. Mm-hmm. Atkin, on the other hand, is 
all principal for page, 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 principal, 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 neighbor, nice references. Oh, now I'll look at some cases that, that support my principal initial position. And then very last of all, I'll look at a few cases that uh, you might think they're against me or they might appear to be against me, but I'll just, I'll just dismiss them. That's how Queenslanders do things. <laughs> very good, it? very good. But it struck me that is this not the sort of judicial activism that you in other episodes of the podcast would decry? <laughs> that this is a judge, uh, Queenslander though he is, which is in his credit, uh, a judge sitting down and rewriting the law, legislating from the bench um, in a way that, would be a lot easier if it was done by parliament, it would be a lot more straightforward if it was done by parliament. But instead you have a judge sitting down without, I mean, there's some authority in there, but without being burdened too much by the authority, setting all this out in, in a legislative type fashion. Yeah, I think Lord Atkin would say he was just discovering the principle which have already existed in the cases. Right? He's not making up the principle, the principle underlies all the cases before that and continues to underlie all the cases after that judgment. So this is this idea that the common law is discovered, not invented, and it is discovered by working out the underlying principle. Is that activist? Well, it depends on whether you think Lord Atkin has fairly captured the underlying principle or not. And, you know, the notion of judicial activism is one of those hackneyed, misused, poorly defined phrases. So we don't need to hang our hats on that. But I am struck that the occasionally adventurous views of judges in other areas of the law, you are more, you're more critical of than this uh, adventurous interpolation on Atkins' part. Do you think it's because he cited the Gospel of Luke? I, I think that never, that never hurts with you. Um, but I think you have a, well, would you, you have a soft spot for the common law and the genius of the common law. And that, this is the genius of the common law in action. And you would say, no doubt, that that's different to how judges should interpret a constitution or legislation. Is that your defense? Uh, that's right. But the common law, after all, is judge-made law. Right? In the common law, judges are, to use Hart's phrase, empowered to change the rules as they decide cases. Right? They operate under the rule of change. So the common law is the domain of judges. The legislative interpretation that judges do, that's actually not the domain of judges. They're, they are interpreting legislation made by parliament. And in constitutional interpretation, they are interpreting a text that was, in, depending on a jurisdiction in the United States, ratified by the states and through the states, the people. Judges don't make or write constitutional texts in the way that judges make and write common law judgments. So it would be a mistake you saying to think about constitutional law as an example of common law reasoning or <laughs> something like that. Now listen, let me, t let me you, you brought up the United States. <laughs> you brought up the United States. <laughs> Cheap shot there, listeners. Um, um, one thing that struck me is this is 19, early 1930s and judges, both Lord Buckmaster in dissent and Lord Atkin, both looked to US law and US cases as to confirm their existing conclusions. Mm. and. It struck me, I don't know, but I, it, it was, you could see in those references to my eyes a changing of the guard, a recognition that British judges were, they, they weren't citing this authority, they were careful to note that America wasn't Britain and mm -hmm. there were different systems, but, but there was a, a more than a begrudging respect there for the way in which the US judges had approached these questions and, and a willingness to, to draw on their cases, particularly the more prominent judges' cases, to to support whatever they concluded or to support whatever their own views were. 
Yeah, two countries divided by a common language. Very good, very good. It is true, I guess, that um, the U.S. at this point, their their tort cases were still citable yeah. by the United Kingdom uh, courts, which um, I'm not sure it's still true yeah. now because the dominance of the law and economics movement in the United States, which have also changed how the law of torts is uh, conceptualized in the States, made it really quite different from the US. So perhaps at this point in history of the history of the common law, there was still less of a parting of ways between the UK and the US. And then over time, um, over the 20th century and then to today, that, that, that sort of, even within the, the, the Commonwealth or the, the, the common law jurisdictions that used to be subject to the Privy Council, the House of Lords, the, the divergence and convergence has gone back and forth over time and different approaches have been taken on, on precisely these questions, right? Yeah. The Privy Council, which... Uh, was staffed by the same judges who sat in the, the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, ensure the common law world have a kind of unity to it that Australia, for example, was bound by the decision in Donahue and Stevenson by virtue of us being subject to the jurisdiction of the Privy Council at that time. That's no longer the case. So there is, there is that fracturing in terms of uh, the presidential value of common law cases coming out of the United Kingdom. We are in, in Donahue and Stevenson, we have a glimpse of a world which was about to end very soon. And just be careful there, Joshua. You almost sound a little bit sentimental about the idea of foreign judges <laughs> providing, uh, providing uh, but, input but, but, on but, Australian law. The Privy law. Council, that, that those are not foreign judges, surely. Mm. They are part of our legal system and our legal tradition. They are a common law court. Well, the listeners can hold you accountable. In the way that the European Court of Justice or the European Court of Human Rights is not in relation to the United Kingdom. Well, it also struck me this very decision, if it is a Celtic majority of Scottish and Welsh judges overruling two English judges, this is also in that sense foreign judges uh, no. Im imposing oh. on English law. Because there is a side point where they all say, this is about Scottish law. Um, we, they, they both, dissenters and majority say this, this is about Scottish law. We're just going to assume that Scottish law and English law are the same on this point. I've done a little bit of research. They're open about how little research they've done. I've done a little bit of research and I'm going to assume they're the same. Let's just proceed on the basis they're the same. It's refreshingly uh, lazy or honest, perhaps. There's a great beauty of the union. It's after all, the union of the great United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, English people, Celtic people, one big happy family. Okay. Um, well, look, Joshua, let's wrap up there. Um, if, if you're a listener like me who once read Donahue and Stevenson but hasn't read it for 10, uh, 5, 10, 20 years, uh, uh, do, do check it out in the show notes. It's particularly Lord Atkins' judgment I thought was just fizzing and very modern uh, in its writing. Uh, but it's time for us to wrap up and turn our snails into escargot. Secondary Rules will be back next week and we'll be continuing our world tour looking at big landmark cases with the Supreme Court of Canada's patriation reference of 1981. Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by the ANU Law Marketing Communications team. Our thanks to Tom Fearon and the ANU Law School. And apologies for the spilt ginger beer. We, if you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out today's show notes. Our theme music is by Soul Shifters. That's it for now. We're Joshua Neo and Ryan Goss. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks, Ryan. See you all next week.